Let's open up our Bibles. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of James? Uh, over there at the resource table, we have those journal Bibles if you haven't grabbed one. Or if you want a regular Bible, you can pick one of those up as well to follow along with us. So we are in James chapter 1. If you're visiting for the first time or you're visiting for the first time in a long time, we just finished uh, 1 Samuel. So we just finished 1 Samuel. Uh, for the summer, we're going to go through the book of James, and then, Lord willing, in the fall, we're going to pick back up at Second Samuel. So we'll have gone through all of First and Second Samuel at the end of the day. Uh, so we are at James chapter 1, and this is our first sermon in James, and we're going to only study the first four, four verses today. So let's read God's Word together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ... To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, a greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Father, we come before you right now, and we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us through the Holy Scriptures. And Lord, they are useful for encouraging, lifting up, convicting, uh, ultimately uh, the catalyst to bring gospel growth into our lives. So we pray to that end as we study uh, the book of James, God, that you would use it as a way to write your very word upon our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, How-to books used to be a huge deal back in the day. Uh, if there was something that you were doing that you had not naturally been trained, qualified for, uh, you could go over to your local library, your local bookstore, you pick up a how-to book, you come home, voila, you could do whatever. Now we're in 2022, I don't think the how-to books are as popular as much as how-to videos. Case in point, a couple months ago, our dryer, something was wrong, it stopped working, we had to fix it. I went online, watched a how-to video on how to change the rollers in our drum in our dryer, and I did it. So yeah, I'm bragging. If you know me, I am not the Mr. Fix-It person. I am the opposite of the Mr. Fix-It person. So there I was, and I probably took longer than I needed to, but like, I did it. Watched the video, had to do it a couple times because after I got it all together, I realized I forgot to put something back on, so I had to undo it and then do it again, so practice makes perfect, but I did it. And the, the, having those videos was so helpful. Having a source for instruction is extremely valuable when you need to do something that you don't know how to do. I would argue that the book of James is a how-to for living out the Christian faith in a fallen world. It's a very practical word of instruction in what the life following Jesus Christ looks like. But it's much more, please understand this, because this is what I do not want you to hear. So you mean to tell me that we're going to look at James, I'm going to get a bunch of lists of things to do and don't do, and no, that's moralism. That's behavior modification. That's just religion. What I do want to show is that the radical transformation that takes place by following Jesus is manifested in the book of James. You want to look at what the life is supposed to look like as a follower of Christ living in this world? Look at the book of James because he's going to go week in and week out as we go through it and explain to us how our lives should appear 
as believers. So it's going to really be knowledge and living as we open up the book of James. Uh, To begin our time, we're going to consider an overview of the letter. So we need to realize he's writing to real people in real time. So we're going to look at who the audience is. We're going to look at the author. So we're going to look at an overview of the letter. Second thing we're going to do is attempt to get our minds right. Attempt to get our minds right. One of the big things we're going to see in James, and specifically in this week's passage, is that it's so important, so crucial for you and I to have our minds thinking rightly. Our thought life has a huge influence on the trajectory of how we live out the Christian life and how we perceive things as they come across our path. Third thing we're going to do is we're going to prepare for what is around the corner, and that is trials. And James is going to be very blunt, very candid. He's not going to sugarcoat it by any means. Trials are there. They're coming. They're going to be all shapes and sizes. Be ready. And then last and definitely not least, we're going to find the purpose behind trials. Because at the end of the day, it's a sovereign God allowing trials to hit your life because he's got a purpose. He's got a plan. He's got a reason. He's doing it for your good, for his glory. And he is growing you. You could argue one of the very best things in all of life that can ever happen to you are trials and tribulations. Now, it doesn't make sense when we say that, but it's the reality of it because it, it takes you to a maturity, a growth in your life that would never have happened if your life was filled with always blue skies and sunshine and no problems, all right? So let's get started as we consider an overview of the letter. Uh, Read with me. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. First of all, let's consider the author. It says James. Now, James was a common name. It was very common. And I mean, I have a common name, the average what? Joe. So James was like the average James. So when somebody said, hey, it's James writing, it could mean a lot of things. But two things that, one, the fact that he just says James implies that there was a prominence amongst his name that the people that would have got this letter would have had an idea what James were talking about, okay? So, and secondly, as we're going to see through the whole study in James, he's very familiar with the Palestinian world. He, he knows Judaism. He knows so much. He, he's got to be probably of the land. So with those kind of parameters in mind, there's two likely candidates. Number one, it's James the Apostle. But there's really nothing in here that necessarily highlights and says, hey, this is James the Apostle. Normally, if the Apostle, I mean, Paul even said what? Some of his letters, he's Paul, an Apostle of God. Well, James doesn't say anything about that, so it's unlikely, and church tradition, church history as a whole tends to lean to, it's a different James, and it's James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, What we know about James is James did not believe in the beginning. Do you remember that? John 7, 5, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. They didn't believe in him, but then something happened post-resurrection that transformed James' life, and James becomes a follower. And not only does he become a follower of Christ, he becomes the most prominent leader amongst the Jewish church. Acts chapter 15, you can see it, the Jerusalem council. Guess who is kind of the point man? 
Guess who's the leader of that meeting from the Jewish side? It's James, James 15, 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. So the author then is James, half-brother of Jesus. Why is that significant? Because the very next thing he says, he says he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servant, it's a doulos. It's not just a servant, a better name recognition for you and I. It's the idea of a slave. He was a bond servant. Isn't that weird? I mean, you and I, do we name drop sometimes? Have you ever name dropped? And I'll clarify what I mean by this. You know what name dropping is? You go somewhere and you know somebody that's prominent to just kind of throw it out there, right? Like that, yeah, I I know him. So like if I go to Freeze Daddy, I say, I know Jason. Ooh, because they're Jason and Nicole are the owners. You understand? It's like the name dropping concept. Think of this. James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. The God-man. Wouldn't that be one of those things that you and I naturally would kind of throw out there? James, half-brother of Jesus. Did I I mention that my half-brother is the eternal son of God who took on flesh and dwelt? Did Did I bring that up? He doesn't do that, though. What does he do? He says, I'm a slave. We see it even right here. Like there's a humility about James as he writes this because he realizes he's no better off than all the non-half-brothers of Jesus Christ. Because notice what I I, I keep stressing, half-brother. Half, why is he half-brother? Because he's the son of God. That he had a very unique virgin birth as his backstory. But there's this humility that he's a slave for Christ, that he's his servant. Well, are you a fellow servant or slave of God? Do you have that kind of humility? Do you serve the Lord with that kind of humility? Because slaves realize that they're not their own. Slaves realize that it's not their agenda, that they have to live for the one in who they are slaves for. But not only do we see the author, we see the audience. Notice who he writes to. It says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. When it says the dispersion, we need to remember what happened in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. They were scattered or they were, let's try the word used here, they were dispersed. So James is writing to the Jews, because notice what he says, the 12 tribes of Abraham. So it had been immediate language that you would have been thinking of, the promises of God, Abraham's, the 12 tribes of Jacob, ultimately. They're scattered. We need to realize they're marginalized. They're victims of injustice. They're bullied. There's temptations galore to compromise. And notice what James does. He doesn't make up any excuses. He just points out the reality. Hey, to the 12 tribes scattered. Yeah, I'm writing to all of you guys who are are persecuted, who are marginalized, who are scattered all over the region under a Roman rule and reign. I'm writing to you, and I'm going to tell you how to live out the Christian life of faith in Jesus Christ. No excuses. He just says, just do it. Live it out. 
Uh, the, the Proverbs of the New Testament is often what the book of James is referred to. It's a book on wisdom. It's wisdom literature. Here's some of the topics we'll talk about over the summer. Trials, uh, wisdom, riches, and poverty, temptation, prayer, faith, and works, speech, worldliness, the future. And the end of the day, what we're going to see James is trying to do is he is trying to produce maturity in the people he's writing to by God's spirit. That's his goal. That's his end game is that he wants those in attendance, those that hear, he wants them to grow and mature in their faith. Well, do you desire to thrive in your relationship with Christ? Do you want to grow? Are you satisfied? Are you content with where you are spiritually? It's true. Paul says uh, the secret of contentment is Christ and we should be content. But content does not mean satisfied with mediocrity in your faith. You should always want to be striving for growth. You want to become more and more into the image of Christ, right? So, so this is what this book's about, and that's one of the reasons that Andy and I and the other elders, we agreed, like, James would be a really good practical book, a nice change of pace from 1 Samuel. But the end goal is we, we want to see you all grow, I want to see you mature in your faith, that over the course of the summer, we see gospel maturation happen. All right, so let's get started as the actual uh, text passage. So we considered an overview, saw the author, audience, themes. Let's now attempt to get our minds right. Let's look at the first subject that he addresses, trials. Listen to what he says. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. Let's count our thoughts. Listen to what he says. This isn't an imperative. This is a command. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, hey, it wouldn't be a bad idea. He says, it's the equivalent parents talking to your kids and you want them to do something. You usually don't do it as a suggestion, right? Like clean your room, pick up, lock the door, turn the lights off. It's not meant like, is mom or dad, are they, are they giving me an option no, they're, they're telling you, and, and James is telling them, count your thoughts. Count them. It's a challenge to be intentional with our mind. 2 Corinthians 10.5, listen to what Paul says. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to obey Christ, being ready to publish, to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Friends, our thought life is so important. I cannot stress it enough. How you think will often be how you go. Now, we need to acknowledge one element in all of this. God has created us as emotional creatures. God has given us feelings. And they're not always bad, but they're definitely not always good. Jesus talks about our heart is deceitful above all things. Why, do I, why am I making this distinction because I think with the subject matter that we are at right now, trials, you and I are often way more steered by our feelings than our thoughts. Our feelings end up directing our thoughts. And what James is saying is, I want you to stop that, and I want your thoughts to steer your feelings. We see this in Psalm 42. Psalm 42, a great example of this kind of interactions between your thoughts and your feelings. Uh, Psalm 42, he's going through a really difficult time. 
Listen to what he says. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He feels depressed. He feels alone. He feels abandoned. And what does he do? He thinks rightly. And I think that's the, that, that is the difficulty when we start talking about trials and tribulations. You and I need to start thinking rightly, engaging our mind, engaging our thoughts as these trials come our way. But not only count our thoughts, he says, let's cherish our trials. Let's cherish our trials. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Uh, we, we've had the privilege, now it's our sixth kid. Uh, my wife and I, on, uh, when, before they enter into kindergarten, they have to take a kindergarten test. And it is stressful on the parents way more than the kids. Because you're second-guessing, you're parenting and everything. You're, you're like, yeah, it, it, for those who have been there and have walked it, it's really stressful. And like we sit there and we're not allowed to get involved in the testing, says the teacher. Um, but, like, one of the things they'll do is they'll hold up, like, cards of, like, images. And then the kid will say, elephant, airplane, pencil, or things like that. It's this real simple kind of recognition based on sight. One of the easiest components of the thing. I, I remember the one, one of our kids, they put a lion on and they said, tiger. I'm like, come on. I'm looking at Abby. I'm like, that's a Whitman in him. All right, so I hold a card up, and the card is a trial. What would you typically say? Painful? Inconvenient? Awful? Not desirable? And yet he's saying, when you see that card, this is what you need to say. Joy? Gladness, goodness, pleasure. Do you see how counterintuitive what James is saying here? And that's why it has to start in your mind. It's the same word often used in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels and the book of Acts, with the resurrection of Jesus. When they found out that Jesus was resurrected, it produced what? Joy, And in the book of Acts, when, when people were converted, it produced joy. And that is what he's saying. When you and I see trials, guess what we're supposed to have? Joy, joy. Acts 5.41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. With that being said, I think we need to exercise caution here. What James is not telling us is that you and I fake a smile and pretend like everything's right. That grieving is allowed. You're not doing any service this week if you were in Texas talking to one of the parents whose child was killed in that senseless shooting telling them to consider it joy. 
The joy, though, that we're talking about is Holy Spirit-produced joy. It's that idea that it's a choice on our part, that it is well with our soul. When's the last time that you found joy in trials like that? What What produces joy in your life? So we considered the overview of the book. We saw the author. We saw the audience. We saw... Uh, the themes, we got our minds right, counter thoughts, cherish trials. Let's now prepare for what is around the corner. Look at the second half of verse two. It says, when you meet trials, they are certain to happen. Notice so he says, when. Did you get that? He doesn't say if. The few times you might face some notes. In other words, they are coming. It's a, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Have, now, we have a lot of tracking now with regards to packages with mail, but has anybody ever sent you something that said it's coming, but we don't know when? You know what I mean? You're, you're kind of just left for every day you go out to the mailbox, you open it up, oh, it's not there. Maybe it's going to come the next day. It's a matter of the timing of trials. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, all who desire a godly life in Jesus Christ, guess what it says? Will be persecuted. John 16.33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation. Well, do you have an unrealistic view of life, of the trials that are coming? I think sometimes we paint a picture of Christianity and maybe even share the gospel in a way that you give people the unlikely, they they, they feel like, oh, if I follow Jesus, life is going to be smooth sailing. If I follow Jesus, I'm not going to have trials, I'm not going to have struggles, and, and that is not the case. They are certain to happen. But notice what else. Not only are they certain to happen, they are quite diverse in their happening. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. We had a Baskin Robbins near my hometown, and I remember going there, and does anybody know how many flavors they used to have? It was like kind of their 31 flavors. Good job. Now I went online, they have 1,400 flavors in their flavor library. Trials are like that, right? <clears throat> that kind of diversity. Listen to what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 11. I was flogged, beaten by rods, stoned, shipwrecked, danger, hunger, thirst, cold, and apart from other things, there was the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. Not the most optimistic, not the most encouraging thing by any means by James, or by, by Paul. But I mean, that's it, right? Trials come big and long, small and short, intense, minor. You just don't know what flavor is the flavor of the day. And that's what these Christians were experiencing dispersed around the region Trials had come, trials were coming. What trials are you currently enduring today? 
Currently, what trials are you going through? What have you endured? Do you see the diversity in them? Because, I mean, trials are a way of life, are they not? We've all had them. <coughs> I mean, think of the last two years. COVID, kind of a trial. A little, little one. All right, so we looked at the overview, audience, author. We looked at our mind, consider, cherish. We looked at trials, certain and diverse. And lastly, let's uh, look at the purpose behind the trials. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith. What is the trial used for? Did you hear it? Testing. Trials are for testing. Who here, when they were in school, liked pop quizzes? Raise your hand. Who here did not like pop quizzes? Raise your hand. You're just frustrated. Now, if a teacher consistently gave you a pop quiz on Monday, does it really feel like a pop quiz anymore? Because you kind of see it coming? Well, that's what trials are. I mean, they're not pop trials. They're coming. They're, 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 they're coming, and what are they coming for? To test our faith. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. If you know anything about gold, fire is often used to purify the gold and remove impurities. And what God does is he uses trials in your life and in my life to purify our faith, to make us stronger in our faith. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, do you have a correct view of trials? If the trials are a test, what kind of grade are you scoring? Does your faith need tested? I think because most of us think our, our faith is strong enough that we don't need it tested, right? Amen? Like, God, I've already learned this lesson. I'm good to go. Feel free to move on to the next person. There are a lot of people I know that need their faith tested. But me, on the other hand, I have learned the lesson. I am set. But God loves us too much. He knows us too well that he chooses to give us more trials. So they're not only for the testing, they're transformative. They're for transformation. It says that it produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness, not a word that you and I often use in our regular vocabulary. It, it, it carries kind of the idea of being able to bear weight, to be under a burden. I recently saw one of my favorite football players. He was squatting 675 pounds. You know what squatting is? There's a barbell, so like an Olympic-sized 45-pound barbell across back shoulder area, and he's going to sit down and, and basically squat, put 675 pounds on, and it was a real squat. Like he went down and he went up, and it's like, whoa. And I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I wonder how much I could stand under. Not even do the squat part. Like I'm, 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 I know I cannot do 675 pounds. I'm starting to do the, I'm not even going to say the number I think because somebody's going to be like, well, let's prove it. Let's go up to the weight room after church. 
And then next thing you know, I'm going to be sitting in a chair in a wheelchair maybe next week when like I didn't, I wasn't able to bear that much weight. But what God does with us is he allows these trials to strengthen our, our spiritual legs, our spiritual shoulders, so that we can bear more and more weight over a lifetime. It makes us stronger in our faith. Romans 5, 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And that's what it does. It, it, it has a fact. It says that you may be perfect and complete. Now, he's not talking literal perfection, okay? This side of glory. You and I are not going to achieve perfection this side of glory. But it will produce maturity. Colossians 1.28, we want to present everyone mature in Christ. So without trials, you will be weak. Without trials, you will be immature. Without trials, you will be lacking. And that's why I could say with all honesty earlier that one of the greatest things that can ever happen in your life are trials. Why? Because it matures your faith. If you don't have trials, you will never get stronger in your faith. God loves you so much, he allows you to endure because he wants your faith to be strengthened. He wants you to become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. So you and I, in our desire to be God, if we were God, we would never put trials in people's life because it seems mean-spirited, it seems hurtful, it's painful. I only want good things to happen in people's lives. God, who's way better at being God than you and I, allows those things because like at the end of the day, that's not helping them. At the end of the day, a life free of trials is a life free of faith. Well, do you see the value in trials? Do you see the purpose? Even as I asked you earlier in your life, your, your current life, what you're going through right now, whatever that trial is, whether it's relational, physical, emotional, Financial, you know what's going on right now in your life. Can you take a moment in this time to look at and say, okay, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? How are you using this to mature me in my faith? It reminds me of a saint, a brother in Christ, who endured one of the worst trials I've ever seen. And God has used it to encourage you and I today. And I've shared his story a little bit before, but Horatio Spafford, well-known hymn writer, he was a businessman. Uh, he, him and his family were in Chicago. They ended up sending uh, his four daughters and his wife on the Villa du Havre, Havre, I do not know French, so that's how it sounds to me. Uh, he, they sent them on this French ocean liner on November 21st, 1873, <clears throat> across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe with 313 passengers. Horatio stayed back. He was going to take a later ship across the ocean to meet up with them. So his wife, his four daughters are on this. He gets a... He gets a telegram from his wife, and these are the only words on this telegram. Saved alone, what shall I do? So on this ship, 
He lost his four daughters. They drowned. Lost. His wife would later say, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken from me. Someday I will understand why, but right now I don't. On the trip back to Europe, Horatio, grieving the death of his four daughters, when they got near where the ship had sunk, the captain told him this is where it happened. Over the course of that Over the course of that travel back, he penned, I would argue, one of the the most beautiful hymns. It is well with my soul. Now, I practiced all week that I would not cry during this time, and I was actually feeling pretty good about 30 seconds ago. I was like, I think I'm feeling okay. Boom, it happened. Um... Listen to the lyrics, though. Listen to the lyrics, but I want you to listen to them through the lens of trials. I want you to listen to them through the lens of somebody who wrote these who lost four kids on the same day. It says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my thought has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control. Christ hath regarded my helpless estate, and he has shed his own blood for my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sight, the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. I wonder, and I've never had a chance to read anything, I wonder if James 1-2 was in Horatio's mind as he penned this hymn. Because it is, it is the quintessential, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials. It is well with my soul. Spafford and his wife, they shed many tears over the loss of their daughters. That could not be undone. But they could look at that trial and know my Lord has a purpose behind it. Whatever sorrows like sea bellows roll, including losing a daughter, whatever my lot, thou has taught me to say it is well with my soul. Friends, trials are divine blessings from on high. We're to embrace them as a means by which God produced growth and maturity in our life. Without this trial in Horatio's life, we don't have that hymn. And without that hymn, there's a lot of people that weren't comforted who went through similar trials. It's through difficulties that our faith blossoms and we are conformed more and more into the image of his son. Even if we don't see what he's doing in the trials, know this, he is doing something for your good, his glory. He is producing steadfastness and character and endurance and maturity. At the end of the day, he's producing Jesus's conformity. He's making you more and more like Christ. And that is why we can say it is well with our soul. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we, one, confess that we're often not where James is with regards to a disposition of trials. 
We consider trials a, a, an inconvenience, a frustration, something that we've learned enough from, just get it out of here. But Lord, you love us so much. You care for us so much. You refuse to let us go through this life free of such suffering. Because if we went that way, if we went this life of ease and comfort that we long for, our faith would remain weak. Our character would remain very impure and sinful. But God, you want to transform us. So we thank you. We pray, God, as we even look ahead at future trials that we will all endure. God, that you would help us to consider our thoughts wisely that we would look at them with pure joy because we know that you have a reason and your reason is always good. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?